We, uh, over Advent, took a little break from uh, part two of Luke's account of Jesus' life and teachings. Um, we uh, hopped over to, to Luke 1, uh, to chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's account of Jesus' life uh, while he was on this earth, uh, looking at the, the songs um, as people responded to the news and the arrival of Jesus' coming. Um, so now we're hopping back into uh, part two. It's titled Acts in, uh, in the New Testament. Um, remember, Luke has been writing this account to a man named uh, Theophilus uh, and to other believers who would read this, that they would have certainty concerning the things that they've been taught. That they're believing about Jesus, about who he is, about what he did, about what he accomplished. Um, not just what he did while he was on the earth, but as we're seeing in Acts, Jesus rules and reigns now. And although he's not physically present on the earth, he continues to still act and work um, as the gospel moves forward, as his spirit is present among his people, and as his kingdom spreads, as he uses his people to spread that good news. Um, we've seen in Acts as uh, the Lord has been uh, working to overcome opposition to his to his church as he's renewed and restored his people um, and has been reaching not only into the, the people of Israel as they've been hoping in the promised Messiah. Uh, but now that we're seeing uh, uh, headway beginning to, to be made in among the Gentiles as uh, God is spreading the good news there as well. Um, and one of the as we're moving uh, forward through this, uh, the, the rest of Acts, uh, one of the key people that Jesus is going to be using and working through to carry this mission forward is uh, a man that we were introduced to earlier who uh, by the name of Saul. Um, he's also known as Paul um, and uh, he has and, and uh, a guy named Barnabas have gone out on a, a missionary journey. They've been sent out by uh, the Gentile church in Antioch uh, to spread and share the good news of Jesus. Um, we were, uh, a month ago, we saw the, the first stop on their, uh, their journey. And so we're picking back up with uh, Saul, also known, known as Paul. He's going to be referred to as Paul through the rest of the book as he's encountering more Gentiles. So they're using his Roman uh, Latinized name. Um, uh, as, as we see him engaging both with Jews and with Gentiles as he's seeking to take the message and the good news of Jesus forward. Um, and so this, uh, this week he's um, in another town called Antioch um, uh, in uh, Pisidia. Uh, and so we're going to pick up in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Uh, so if you want to follow along, this is on page 920. 921, you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, um, and we're picking up in verse 13, um, and we're going to go all the way through uh, the end of this chapter um, as we uh, see this, uh, most of the chapter is taken up with this, um, this sermon that Paul gives uh, in the, the synagogue there in Antioch. Um, so, uh, if you would, uh, let, follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God from Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. 
and on the Sabbath day went in to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, uh, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy 
and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the the devout women of of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, continuing to reveal Yourself to us. We thank You for uh, guiding Luke uh, as he records this history for us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that You would apply Your Word to the hearts and minds of Your people this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was in uh, high school, you could get your driver's permit at 15. You get your full, complete, and total driver's license at 16. There were no restrictions. You didn't have to be in at a certain time. You could have any and everybody you wanted in your car. You could drive out of state, across the country, all hours of the night. It did not matter. And so there was always a mad rush to get your driver's license as soon as you turned 16. I was there an hour before the DMV opened so that I could be in line. A girl from my class got there before me and she was in front, but I still got my license. But her brother, oh, her brother, it took him many, many times. Both her and I, we, we, got our, our, we passed our driver's test the first time, you know, driving around. We went to this one DMV where you didn't have to parallel park, which is always uh, an advantage. But her brother, it took him three or four times. I think he was a couple years older than her. She got her driver's license before he did because something would always happen. One time he, he got into the, the car with the instructor. I think he was nervous. Instructor gets in, buckles up, and they pull off. And they don't even get out of the parking lot of the DMV. And the instructor says, son, turn around and go back. Uh, you failed your test. Um, It doesn't matter how well you continue to drive, and if you have a perfect test from here on out, you failed because you did not buckle your seatbelt. This one thing is so important that if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. The next time he comes back, he remembers to buckle his seatbelt, but this time, instead of stopping at a stoplight, he goes through it. And again, the instructor's like, son, you're just going to have to turn around and go on back because I'm, I'm failing you. There, there are certain things about driving and about the driver's test that it doesn't matter if you get everything else right. Certain things are so vitally important that if you get them wrong, you get everything else wrong. Um, as we look and see here and hear this sermon that Paul is communicating and, and preaching to this synagogue. 
Paul is talking about something that is even more important than buckling your seatbelt. Even more important than making sure you slow down and stop at a yellow light for your driver's test. Um, Paul is saying and is going to point and show us that Jesus is the big deal. And if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. It is vitally necessary to understand who Jesus is, what He has come to accomplish, and what our proper response should be. Notice how Paul begins to to start to, to, to show and communicate to the people listening and to us how important Jesus is. That if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. Why? Because it's all about Him. Notice, notice how he, he explains that. And as we go through the, the beginning of his, of his sermon, from verse 17 on, uh, Paul starts with the, the calling and the choosing of the people of Israel. But he flies through the history of God's people. Notice the things that he's covering so quickly. He's highlighting God's grace and God's provision for the people of Israel. But he's talking about the choosing of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boom, we're through the whole book of Genesis. Paul's done with it. Then he talks about their stay in the land of Egypt and them being uplifted and led out by a mighty and strong arm. Exodus, all right, we're done. The great act of redemption in the Old Testament, Paul blows by and says, yeah, remember God did that too. He goes on past and talks about their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now we're through the rest of the, 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 the Pentateuch, through Numbers and, and finally out in Deuteronomy. Then destroying the lands of Canaan. Now he's flown through in, in a sentence all of uh, the book of Joshua. Big highlight things of God fulfilling his promises. Paul is blowing by. Where is he going? Where is he headed? Where does he got to get so fast as he's explaining this? He goes on and talks about the, the judges and the coming of Samuel, the coming of the first king. Israel is being made into a nation. A king has been established. Saul's gone. The first half of, uh, uh, of uh, first Samuel. And then he slows down. He begins to slow down and focus more on David. But he's not so much focusing on David as who comes from David. Notice, as he slows down and he gives so much more attention as he begins to get to David. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Why does he slow down on David? Because of David's offspring. It's all about getting to this offspring of David. And notice what he says. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Paul is focusing in this sermon and rushing to Jesus. Why? Because he's saying Jesus is the climax. Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus is the point of all of Israel's history, of all of Israel's existence. It's been all about God's pouring out His grace and working in the lives of the people of Israel and in the whole Old Testament to get to the point of this promised one coming. And He has come and Jesus is it. 
Jesus is the big deal. Jesus is what all of your history, people of God, was about. It is why you have been chosen and why you were in existence. That blessing might come through the world, through you, through this promised offspring. And Jesus is it. It's all about him. Notice, even as as he brings up John the Baptist, this would have been a a prophet recognized by the people um, uh, active during that time, we learned about him. His father sang a song. Zechariah sang a song uh, about uh, John's uh, uh, coming and the work that he would do, be doing and preparing for the Messiah coming. Look what John, this great prophet, that the people of Jerusalem left Jerusalem to go see this crazy bearded camel hair locust and honey eating man out in the wilderness to listen to his words as he's prophesying to the people of Israel. Prophets were a big deal to the people of Israel. A huge deal. But notice what this great last prophet says about his role and about Jesus. A lot of people thought he might be the Christ. He says, no, I'm not he, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. John is saying, look, Jesus is so great. I am fulfilling this role of prophet that God has called me to speak and communicate and work on behalf of the people. I'm not even worthy to do a servant's task for him. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. That is how great and how big of a deal Jesus is. You must understand and properly appreciate and grasp who he is how great He is, how significant He is. Paul continues and he goes on uh, in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So now he's talking to, to Jews who are who related to Abraham by, by, by birth and by blood, but also here a part of this synagogue would have been Gentiles who would have, uh, who have, would have feared and, and converted to uh to uh, Judaism and embrace the God of Israel. To us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Paul's saying, look, not only was the history all about getting to Jesus, but every Sabbath, that you have ever gathered here to listen to the law and the prophets, the word of God being preached, it was speaking about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, all of the words that the prophets were talking about, preparing, pointing to, it's all about Him. Jesus has been a big deal. Every time you've come, you've heard about Him. I hope you haven't missed it. Because many of God's people have, Paul is saying, they weren't, they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't understand the prophets. To rightly understand the scriptures, Paul is saying, is to see who Jesus is, to grasp his identity, his work, and his purpose. If you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. Because all of the scriptures have pointed to him. All of Israel's history has pointed to him. And notice that, how Paul 
wraps up close to the end in verse 39. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This great provision God had given the people of how to be made right with Him, about how to live in a a relationship of peace and love and fellowship with Him as categorized in the law. Paul is saying Jesus has surpassed that. Jesus has provided in ways that that the law never could. Jesus brings freedom, or uh, the same word is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about justification that we've been proclaiming. You could not keep the law and become fully righteous and justified in God's eyes. You could not ultimately become free because the law was pointing you to the one who was coming who would bring freedom, who would bring justification. And that was Jesus. Paul is saying it's all about him. Hopefully, those of you who were here for the Christmas Eve service, you saw this. Um, uh, as we, we started in Genesis, and we read selections and passages from Genesis all the way to Revelation, all of them pointing to the Christ who would come, fulfilling out the identity and the role and the purpose of this King who would arrive and the victory that He would achieve for His people. All of the Scriptures are pointing to Jesus pointing back to Jesus, or pointing forward to His coming again. Jesus is a big, big, big deal. And Paul is saying and proclaiming to any who will hear, to any who will listen, that if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. You may know the Bible. You may know your catechism. You may know and memorize verses. You may be able to pass all sorts of theology tests and teach classes. But if you get Jesus wrong, you failed to understand it at all, Paul is saying. Jesus is that important. You get him wrong, you get it all wrong. All right. Those are some pretty big claims, Paul. Huge, huge claims. How how do we know? How do we know that Jesus is the guy? How do we know that Jesus is the big deal? How do we know that Jesus is the seatbelt buckle part of the driver's test? I mean, didn't he die, Paul? Didn't this promised one that you're talking about If I remember rightly, he died a shameful death at the hands of the Romans. How do we know that he wasn't just an imposter and that his crucifixion, his death was evidence of God's judgment on him for being the false teacher, for not being the promised one? Notice Paul kind of brings some of these things up in verse 29. In verse, we'll actually start in verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul is, is touching and using language here of describing what Jesus died on as a tree. He didn't die on 
an actual tree with leaves and branches on it. He died on a cross. Now, it was made of wood, so it came from a tree, but Paul is describing it as a tree because he's pointing back to what the, the, the Old Testament tells about those who hang on a tree in the law are described as those who are being cursed. They're cursed by God. They are bearing God's curse and his wrath. And Paul is saying this Jesus, this promised one, he hung on a tree. That's playing into the Jews' thoughts of Jesus being his death, demonstrating that he was cursed by God and he was being punished for his blasphemy of claiming to be God, of doing the things that only God can do, of pronouncing that he could forgive sins. Of, of, of accepting and receiving worship before other people, of talking about coming in glory in the clouds. But also, as the Gentiles would hear this, this would have been questions as well. Uh, you can look back in, uh, in church history and see in the early church, there's graffiti um, that's put up mocking Christians. And what it is, is it's a, it's a cross. And on the cross is the body of a man and the head of a donkey mocking and saying, this Jesus that you follow is an ass. He's a fool because he died a shameful death on the cross. The tree for Jews, the, the cross for Romans was a shameful place to die. You don't want to have your king, your promised one associated with this. Yet Paul takes those objections head on because it's an important question because Paul is saying, yeah, he, he died on the tree. He's buried in the tomb. It was a, a, a curse. It was a shameful death. But you need to remember, he tells us in verse 28, that they found in him no guilt worthy of death. He, he was innocent. And that curse that he died... He, he didn't die. It, was, it wasn't because of his own curse, because he was innocent. He was bearing the curse of others, Paul is beginning to touch on, of the fact that Jesus' death wasn't for his own sin and being rejected by God, but Jesus was rejected by God so that we could be accepted, Paul's beginning to touch on. Well, how do, how do we know? How do we know this, Paul? A couple of... Years ago, um, I had met a young man here in Elizabeth City. Um, he described himself as an atheist at first, but the more you got to, to, to know him, um, he'd probably be better termed an agnostic, not really knowing what was true, if there was a God or, or not. We met for coffee over the, the course of a, of a couple of weeks, investigating some things um, in the, the Scriptures about Jesus life and his teachings. He, he actually visited church here a couple of times. And after we'd met for a while, he asked me this question. He said, how can you be so sure? How do you know of all the 3,000 religions that are out there, of everything that people's believing, how do you know, how can you have certainty if we want to pick up on Luke's language, how can you have certainty that you're, you're right that Jesus is the only one, the only way. How do you know? And I was thinking, and my first response was, well, pointing him to the Scriptures. It's like, well, the Bible's reliable. We can trust it. 
Um, there's tons of manuscript evidence. And as far as uh, ancient literature goes, the Bible pales in comparison to how accurate it is, how we know that, the, the, that what we're reading uh, matches up with the original writings and that it's been um, protected and guarded over time. And so that what we're reading is a true and right account of what, uh, what occurred. And he, we went away from, uh, uh, from coffee that day and I just kept thinking about my answer and I was like, that's true, but that's, that shouldn't be the reason. There's something bigger than that. It's Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That is how I know that is how we know the, the reliability of the scriptures help explain that. And that's the next question. Well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? But the big deal, the reason we know and that we can have certainty that Jesus is the way and there are none of the three other thousand ways are the way is because of the resurrection. And that is where Paul goes. How do we know Jesus is a big deal? How do we know that you get if you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong? How do we know that he's the culmination of everything? The resurrection. Notice, this is where Paul goes. They took him down from the tree. They laid him in a tomb. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Not only did he raise him from the dead, he appeared. He appeared, he says, to those who had come up with him from Galilee. Jesus is showing up evidence in the fact that he died. And in case some people would want to say, oh, he just fainted or he wasn't really dead. You've got to remember as Luke's recounting this, he's already told us in part one, the Romans killed him. These guys were skilled at killing people. That's what they did. That's why they put you on a cross. They didn't make mistakes. In fact, if you want to go and read Mark's account of it, he emphasizes over and over again that Jesus, in fact, I'll just read it so that, that you hear how much Mark wants you to know that Jesus really died. In Mark chapter 15, he says it, uh, says it like this. Um, uh, they crucified him. They decided to cast lots. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. And then it goes on and then it says, uh, um, in a loud cry, he breathed his last. There were women looking, uh, looking beyond. And then in verse 42, this is where it picks up. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The gospel writers want you to know Jesus really died, but they also want you to know that Jesus really rose from the dead. He appeared to people. He ate fish. He wasn't just a ghost or an appearance. They weren't drunk. They weren't hallucinating. In space and time and history, Jesus Christ, who was dead and in the tomb, came out alive. 
Paul is saying this is evidence that he is who he said he was, that he is the fulfillment of all things, and that he is the only way. Notice Paul emphasizes this in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The reason we know Jesus is the fulfillment of all things is because God raised him from the dead. We got to go there. The resurrection is the big deal that shows us who Jesus is and how we know. He continues and he, he goes on. All of these verses that he's accounting and, and talking about as he's relating it from the, from the Psalms and talking about David, it's all pointing to the resurrection. About how in the resurrection it demonstrates that Jesus is being exalted by God, not as a curse, but being a, a, the anointed promised one uh, that was promised to David. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Of talking of that was when the, the the kings would have been coronated and assumed the throne. Paul is saying that in the resurrection of Jesus, he's assuming the throne of David. And then in verse thirty four, he's talking about because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all the promises and the blessings that were to come to the people through David are coming through Christ. And then he goes on and talks about how God promised that that Jesus would not see corruption. His body would not rot. David is in a tomb. We've seen the gospel writers go back to this psalm over and over. David died. He rotted. His body is not here anymore. It's become dust. But Jesus' tomb, it's empty. He rose from the dead. He never experienced corruption. And so rooting it in the resurrection of Jesus, notice what Paul says in verse 38. 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. That's Jesus. In verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The reason you know that Jesus and Jesus alone brings forgiveness the reason that you know that it's Jesus' righteousness on your behalf and not your keeping the law, that it's looking and hoping to Him that that is how one is made right with God is because of the resurrection. That is what confirms that Jesus is who He says He is and that salvation comes through Him and no one else. It's not arrogance to say, I have figured it out. It's not what I'm trying to say at all or that what Christians are trying to say. We're saying that God has revealed himself in such a way and demonstrated uh, his proclamation of how salvation comes and that it's through Jesus and put a big exclamation point on it through the resurrection to show that Jesus was who he says he was and that what he accomplished, he sought out to accomplish. Maybe you're here this morning and you still have questions like my agnostic friend. How do you know? If you would like to investigate that further, if you would like to look into the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, if you would like to look more into the reliability of the Scriptures and see more about what Jesus taught and claimed about Himself, and about the truth and the realities of the resurrection, I would love 
love the opportunity to, uh, to meet with you. Um, if you uh, are a believer, um, if you are like Theophilus, who, is, who have trusted and are following Jesus, and you're still wondering sometimes, uh, is Jesus the only way? There's so many other faiths out there. Can I, can I be sure? Luke wants us to know we can have certainty and know that Jesus really rose from the dead and the things that you're believing and trusting and hoping in Jesus, that you would believe that this guy who died over 2,000 years ago, that he really rose from the dead and forgiveness can be found in him. Luke is saying you can have that certainty and know. If you too would like to look more into to see how we can know and be sure of what the Scriptures teach, I would love the opportunity to do that. The Gospels are clear. Luke is clear. We can know that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus is the point that all the Scriptures are pointing to. And that if we get Jesus wrong, we get it all wrong. Um, recently, I was watching a, a, a documentary that was tracing the evolution of, of rock climbing. So not climbing a mountain necessarily with picks and going up to Everest, but people just go out into national parks in the, in the U.S. and they see this sheer cliff and they're like, huh, you know what would be a great idea for me to climb this thing? Not on a trail, but they first started by drilling and pegging in spikes and hooking up all their ropes and things. And sometimes they'd climb from the top and throw the rope down and then work their way and climb up. It's such a competition. They were so competitive. It was all about how can I top the person, either get to the top faster than they did or do it with less gear than they did. And so what began to happen is, this is crazy to me, but they started getting rid of the gear to where the thing now that people are doing is something called free soloing, which means you climb these super tall, clear, like, rock faces with no gear at all. No ropes, no harness, no net. You, some chalk, and your fingers. And they go up the sides of these mountains. No thank you. I don't even like crawling on my roof. Why? Because of the risk. What will happen if my ladder falls? What happens if I can't reach my foot down and get back on and nobody inside can hear me? No, thank you. To think about crawling up the side of a mountain, you better know the risks that are involved. Because when you go with no gear, with no rope, I hope you understand the risks rightly. Because if your hands get sweaty or you get a cramp, or a bird decides to come and see what you're doing, you're going to fall. Nothing's going to grab you, and you will die. That is the risk you are taking if you free solo climb up a rock face. Paul is saying, what I'm putting before you now is a, a bigger decision than that. And it is important that you recognize the risks that are associated with getting Jesus wrong. 
and failing to properly respond to who he is and how he's revealed himself. Notice how Paul points us to these risks. Notice in verse 23, as he's talking about this message of uh, about Jesus and what he is proclaiming in verse 23 of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Jesus is being proclaimed and described as being one who saves. In verse 26, he emphasizes it again, that Jesus coming uh, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. The message proclaiming about who Jesus is and what he's done somehow leads to or can lead to salvation. In verse 38, Paul says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in verse 39, he tells us about how freedom or justification comes through Jesus and what Jesus has done. Paul is saying, here's the options. Jesus is being presented to you as a Savior, as a Redeemer, as the one through whom you can find forgiveness. You can choose to reject Him, who He is and what He's done, or you can accept it. Notice what Paul says the risks are of rejecting Jesus. In verse 40, Beware, therefore. Puts a warning. Notice, these are the risks. Lest what is said of the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The message of Jesus is being proclaimed. And Paul is saying, you better be warned, because if you do not believe and accept who Jesus is and follow him, the result will be you will perish. This isn't just talking about death. It's talking about eternal separation from God. God's curse on you forever. Notice how he continues to go on about it in verse 45, describing what the Jews are doing. The next day, the whole city was gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. What is Paul speaking? The message of Jesus, proclaiming who Jesus is, how big a deal Jesus is. The Jews are saying Paul is wrong. It's not about Jesus. Jesus is not the only one. Notice what Paul says to them in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. They're contradicting this proclamation of who Jesus is. They're thrusting aside that message, rejecting it. And Paul is saying the result is you do not gain eternal life. If you reject Jesus, if you get Jesus wrong, you will suffer apart from God forever. In fact, Paul and Barnabas put an exclamation point on it as they the Jews gather up with the leading people and ended up driving Paul and Barnabas out of town. And it says in verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them when they went to Iconium. That would have been a message to the Jews that what we're de declaring and showing you is that you are unclean. 
isolated and separated from God, and we do not even want to carry the dust from your town with us any further. Because of your rejection, you have been isolated and separated from God. This is, uh, some might say, pretty arrogant of Paul to say. How can he be so exclusive? How can he say that, that Jesus is the only way, that he has it right, and that these other people are wrong? Surely Paul is, is altering and distorting the message of humble, gentle, loving Jesus. But actually, Paul's not. If we hear what Jesus has to say, we can't just leave it with people saying that Jesus was a good teacher. If you say that he's a good teacher, we must account everything that Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus says of himself and of your response to who he is. In John chapter 3, these are some famous verses, at least the first one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Salvation comes through Jesus, He's saying. But in verse 18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus says to not believe in Him will result in condemnation. And over in Matthew chapter 25, um, to see as another writer about Jesus' life and teachings accounts uh, similar context of Jesus saying, this isn't just that you die and you cease to exist, but it means rejection and a, you'll be apart from God forever, suffering eternally. In verse uh, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Uh, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats he will put on the left. Then the king, and this is Jesus talking here, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he says this later on to those on his left in verse 41 of chapter 25 of Matthew Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, and then in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus, Paul is just communicating what Jesus taught about himself. I am what it's all about. I am God in the flesh. I have come to redeem and save you. If you get me wrong, you get it all wrong. But notice what Paul continues to go on and say, just like what Jesus says uh, in verse 47. Um, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Believing and accepting Jesus leads to salvation. Notice in verse 48 how it clarifies this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Believing in Jesus, resting in him alone, um, trusting in his life, death and resurrection for you and submitting to him as your king and ruler leads to eternal life. 
And notice, as Luke is recounting this, although Paul is the one speaking, it doesn't say they believe the words of Paul. What did it say there? In verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. This is Jesus teaching. Remember what Luke has been telling us. Jesus is continuing to act and speak through his people. And Jesus himself is the one who is saying, if you get me wrong, you get it all wrong. But if you hear my words, if you hear my voice, if you see and recognize that I am the promised one and the only hope you have is in my mercy and in my grace and in the work that I've done for you on the cross and you look and hope and trust in me, salvation can be yours. Eternal life will be yours. Living and dwelling with me forever. Those are the risks we take. Either suffering eternally apart from Jesus or rejoicing and dwelling eternally with Jesus. Paul is clear. The Scriptures are clear. Jesus is clear. Jesus is the big deal of the Scriptures. If we get Him wrong, we get it all wrong. But in His mercy and His grace, Jesus speaks to us this morning. And we can have certainty about Him and about the hope that He offers through His life, His death, and His resurrection for His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that the Scriptures are true. We thank You that Jesus did accomplish what He said and that He was who He was because of the resurrection. We see that as being certain and true historical evidence. Uh, May we rest and hope and trust in Him. May we look and cling to Jesus until He returns. In Christ's name, Amen. As Jesus was with his disciples, as he was on his way to really die, to bring forgiveness for his people, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after the supper, Christ took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. As long as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return.